Today we're continuing into Ephesians chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the beginning of chapter 5. And last week, as we finished chapter 4, we were asking the question, who are you becoming? What sort of person are you becoming? We talked about this this new identity, this new self, Paul says, that we put on in the person of Jesus Christ. We put off an old self, we put on the new person, the new body, the new humanity of Jesus Christ. And that is transformative. Well, this week we're asking a related question. This week we're asking, whose child are you then? Whose child are you? Whether we're seven years old or whether we're 75 years old, we always remain somebody's child, right? We never stop being the child of someone. We are indelibly marked by the attitudes, by the genetics, by the affections passed on to us through our mothers and fathers. And our our parents are the very first audience that we know in this life. They're the first people we long to be close to. We long to please them. And we long to to imitate them. We long to become like our mothers and fathers. And I saw this clip this week. I just thought I'd play this for you. This is a a sort of funny clip of of how how, how quickly in, in our lives, early in our lives, we begin to imitate our parents. You probably have home movies of of your own that would demonstrate the same principle. Right? A huge portion of our identity is, is given to us, is modeled to us and for us by our parents. And throughout this letter of Paul to uh, the church communities in and around Ephesus, he has been deeply interested in this aspect of our identity. Paul has been asking us to consider that, that as children of God, as, as people who now belong to the church... Whose child are you? What family have you come now to join in? And Paul says that for us to really grasp who we are, for us to really grasp this new identity, this new person we're becoming, we need to know not only our families of origin, the households we grew up in, but he says we also need to consider what he calls our family of adoption. 
Look with me way back in chapter 1. These are verses 4 and 5. Just as Paul is beginning his letter, he points us to this, this place, this foundation of who we are. He says, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Don't we long for that? Don't we long to be without fault in the eyes of our parents? God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. And it gave him great pleasure. And you saw that the smiles of those parents with their kids, right? The, the, the will of God, the purpose, the mystery of God, Paul will say, is that in Jesus Christ, God has set out to bring us to himself, to be his sons and his daughters. It gave him great pleasure. And this happened, Paul says, before we were born, before even the world was created, God set out with a choice, with intention, with purpose to call us his beloved children. And so now, as, as Paul's been moving through the letter, as he starts into chapter 5 here, he returns to this idea, this source of our identity. We're going to pick up with the first verse in chapter 5. Let me pray for us, though, as we open the word of God to us. Lord, we thank you for your intention We thank you for who you are as a father to us, as a creator, as a redeemer, as one who makes holy and whole even those things which were lost and broken. Lord, may we hear in these words the invitation to be children in a whole new way. Lord, I pray as I teach, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the beginning of chapter 5. Again, the end of 4, Paul has been speaking about how we have now been forgiven in Jesus Christ. We've been made a new creation people. A new self has been put on us. And so then he says here in verse 1, Follow then God's example. As God's dearly loved children. And walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. As a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. Or of any kind of impurity or of greed. Because these things are improper For God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes upon those, on the sons 
who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. In these first seven verses of chapter 5, Paul is desiring to tell us what it means to be the children of God's love. What does it mean to be the, the people of his affection, Paul says. And so he says the first thing you need to know about life in this family, the, the first thing you need to know about who you are in your place is that you are children who are dearly loved. You are God's beloved ones. When Paul asks the question, whose children are we? He says, you are the children of the living God. You are his beloved children. And you have been reckoned to him through the sonship of Jesus Christ. We, we share in his identity. Verse 2, he describes Jesus and what he does as, as a beloved child of God. He says, Jesus walked in the way of love to give us himself... To purchase our redemption. And so you, you must know that if God would do this, if, if he would embody himself in the form of Jesus the Son and give his life as, as an offering, as a fragrant aroma to draw you into this family, then that means you are loved in a way you can't fathom. Paul says that is where your identity begins. This is who you are. This will shape who you become in this family. You have a father who loves you. And as he unpacks that idea, he wants us to know that from that place of belovedness, from that place of, of God's perfect love toward us, like any other parent, God desires us to grow up to become like him. To walk like him, to talk like him, to, to carry on his mannerisms, his character, his affections, what he loves. And so in verse 1, Paul commands us, as dearly loved children, the NIV says, follow God's example. The Greek here is more literal. It says, become imitators of the living God. Become mimics of him. How do we become like God? Well, we imitate him. We, we look at him, we see what he does, and we begin to do that same thing ourselves. In his book, The Call, author Oz Guinness reminds us of, of what it is to know God in this way. And he says, quote, The deepest knowledge about God can never be put into words. They can't be spelled out in a sermon or books or lectures or seminars. The deepest knowledge of God must be learned from the master. Must be learned under his authority and in experience. The imitation of Christ that is integral to following him means that when Christ calls us, he enables us to do what he calls us to do. As, as dearly loved children, we're meant to see our Father. We're meant to see what He's like and then imitate Him. Respond to Him. Right? We, just, we can't just think ourselves into Christ's likeness. 
It's not about ideas. It's, it's about imitation. It's about doing and, and, and being and, and modeling the person of Jesus Christ we see. Yes, described in the scriptures, but then lived out in our everyday lives. To become spiritually mature, we must become imitators of God. But Paul says that that's both a a positive practice. We give ourselves to God. We we worship him. We attend to him. We see what he's like. And we begin to put that into practice. But so too, there are other affections, other loves that we must put aside if we're to become like him. In verses 3 through 7, Paul names things that are false sources of affection. You are dearly loved children of God. These things, though you may think they are are sources of affirmation and affection, they they will not cause you to, to become like your father. And so he says, among you there must not be even a hint of these things. Things like sexual immorality, impurity, greed, obscenity, coarse coarse talking, innuendo-laden speech. Paul says, give them no space. Give them no space in your households. Give them no space in your hearts. Because he says, "If, if that becomes the focus of our passions, the focus of our worship then in verse 5, we effectively become idolaters. We become worshipers at the altar of our own desires. Paul warns us to to guard against these things. To be careful. We're meant to ask here, where perhaps have we let these things into our hearts and lives? Where have we let the, the, the sort of prevailing notions about what gives us worth, what causes us to to feel in control or empowered into our everyday thoughts and lives. Paul's point is we cannot be both a beloved child of God and a worshiper of ourselves in in the same person, right? That will divide us, that will tear us apart. As one commentator says, these practices named here, these are the practices of a self-indulgent spirituality. A self-indulgent sensuality. And and God opposes them not just for the sake of, of being in opposition to these things, but because they oppose us to what he loves. Right? He is a God who is not self-indulgent. He is a God who is self-sacrificing. He gives himself away on behalf of another. So these things are diametrically opposed to what he wants us to grow up into. So Paul says here in, in 5, 6, and 7 that if we give our hearts and we give our bodies and we give our mouths and we give our minds to to self-indulgence, to self-satisfaction, then we are effectively disinheriting ourselves as his children. Right? We're, We're casting our lots, he says, with the sons of disobedience. And as we do that, we, we begin to no longer feel, we begin to no longer hear the invitation of God to us to be his beloved children, to know what his affection feels like, 
to hear his words to us. Paul says, do not participate in that. Do not be destroyed. Do not be consumed by it. Again, I think at the heart of of these vices, if that's what you want to call them in these verses, at the heart of them is, is a desire for power. It's a desire for control. It's a desire to make sure I get what I want when I think that I want it. But the more we feed that desire of ourselves, the more we diminish our capacity to receive love as a gift. Love is is given, not taken. And so instead, at the end of verse 4, Paul says, instead of of grasping and taking these things and, and worshiping our own desires, Paul says, instead, let us be children whose lives are full of thanksgiving. Children given to gratitude instead of the worship of self. Picture for a minute a a child who maybe in their their toddler years is always looking for new ways to, to control their mother or father to get what they want, right? We learn these behaviors. We throw temper tantrums. We shout, we grab things from other people. And if you've ever spent much time with a toddler, you'll see that they, they need naps because they wear themselves out being little manipulators, right? It takes a lot of energy to get somebody else to do what you want them to do for you. And as, as long as you're ruled by that kind of self-indulgent way of, of living, that, that need for someone else to always do what you want them to do for you, you, you block yourself off from love. Right? You remain immature. All of us would look at that toddler and know that that's a sign of their immaturity. They've yet to grow up and to understand how deeply they're loved by their parents. But instead, picture that child a few years later, right? And now they have the capacity to share what they've been given. Now they're able to wait patiently for something they desire. They're able, when given something, to say thank you with with gratitude and contentment. Those are the signs every parent longs to see because they're signs of maturity, They're signs that that child has become secure in their place in that family. Right? The the gratitude that's expressed in that child is a sign that that they're now open to the great pleasure of what it is to be loved. Paul says here in verses 1 through 7, you are the dearly loved children of God. Receive that love Imitate God in that love. Be grateful for it. Be rooted in it. Because it will change who you are. And as he goes on into verses 8 through 14, he leads us into another metaphor. He says, you are dearly loved children, and you are now also children of light. Verses 8 through 14. For you were once darkness... But now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit 
of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul says, you are dearly loved children You are children of light. And in the first three verses here, verses 8, 9, and 10, Paul says, you once were, but now you are something different. That's a familiar refrain in the way Paul writes and speaks. Right? In, In the earlier parts of this letter, Paul said, you were once dead. You are now alive. You were once sons and daughters of of rebellion and disobedience, disinheriting yourselves. But now you are beloved children, inheritors of all God desires for you. And now again in verse 8, he says, You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. He's saying, In Jesus Christ, a new day has dawned. We now possess. Moreover, Paul says, we have now become light in him. He doesn't say you're you're like light or even that you're in light here. He says you are light. And he says, so now live in that. Literally walk in that light. As children of light, he says we we get to walk into the fruitfulness of ...of that light, the goodness of it, the righteousness of the light, the truth that the light reveals. Paul calls these things fruits because they're they're the way that that sort of God's goodness and character and who he is begins to, to flourish or to bloom within us as people as, as we walk close with him. We participate in the person of God. Children loved by God, showered in his light. And he says, if if that's who we are, then we don't have to hide who we are. We don't don't have to to be afraid of of what will be revealed. Paul says, we can live out of a new source of motivation. Not fear, not shame, not self-indulgence. Verse 10, we can live with a desire to find what pleases the Lord. Like that child imitating their parents. We walk in the goodness, the fruitfulness of light, growing up in maturity, discovering what is pleasing, what is fitting in this family. And there's, again, a great pleasure, a great freedom, a great lightness in the sense of a lack of burden when we no longer have to live for ourselves. Just like that child who's always scheming to get their own way, right? That's an exhausting way to live. 
Paul says instead, live for the pleasure of God. Live to build up your brothers and sisters. Find out what pleases him. And then he goes on in verses 11 through 13. And he proclaims that that when we step into the light, it has the power to break the hold of darkness over us. We can leave behind the fruitless deeds of darkness. And they're fruitless because they don't yield anything. They, They promise affection. They promise desire. They promise all the things we're after. But they become fruitless. They are They are sterile. They are barren. Leave those things behind. Leave them with all the the shame and insecurity they produce. And Paul says instead, step into the light. Be children of light. And there's there's a great story that speaks to this very thing in the Gospels. In John chapter 3. Where a man named Nicodemus goes to see Jesus. Nicodemus is a man that from the outside looks like he's got it all together. He's a Pharisee. He's a religious leader. But he's troubled that that there's something missing. He's troubled by something within him. And we're told that he goes... He might be the only person that I can think of other than than in the Passion Week that goes to Jesus at night under the cloak of darkness and secrecy. He seeks out Jesus... Commentator Leslie Newbegin says, this is because Nicodemus is is a man drawn to the light that he sees in Jesus, but he himself has not been yet able to leave the darkness. He's he's in between. He's struggling. And so he finds Jesus, and they they speak with one another into the wee hours of the night. They're, They're conversing. They're discussing the things of God, the Spirit of God, how it works. And eventually Jesus calls Nicodemus out. He says, be born again. Come out of the shadows. Be made a new child of life and light. But at least on that evening, on that occasion, Nicodemus remains stuck. We're not told that he's able to take that step yet. And so John, summarizing what we're meant to take from this exchange, he says this in verse 19. This is the verdict then. Light has come into the world. But people loved the darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. And everyone who does evil hates the light. They will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly. That what they have done has been done in the sight of God. John says, either we hide in the shadows out of of a a fear of what we've done, out out of a fear of where our hearts have been, or we, with courage, step into the liberating light of Jesus. And he says, it is a light that exposes, it reveals, it shows all of who we are. But it does so in order that we might live with freedom in the sight of God. That we would no longer have anything to hide. And there's, there's probably not a person in this room today that hasn't lived in the shadows of their own fear and shame. Right? Lived with, with a habit that perpetually defeats us and shames us. 
We live with some failure of our past that, that continues to haunt us. Maybe you live with the sin of something someone has done to you. You didn't even do it or cause it, but, but the, the shame of that thing, the pain of that thing remains with you and, and it cripples you. And as long as, as it remains hidden, as long as fear dominates our hearts, right, then, then that darkness, the cloak of darkness, the heaviness of darkness remains. But the invitation of Jesus is come out of that place. You can bring that, whatever it is, however heavy, however broken, however shameful it feels, you can bring that into my presence and I will breathe my light upon it. Look at what Paul says here in verse 13. He says, the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. Everything that is illuminated by the light of Christ becomes a light. That light is transformative. Right? My greatest fear when, when I have to confess to something I w- wish could, could remain hidden is that when I put that out before you or before whoever it is, when my darkness is laid bare for all to see, that I will forever be defined by that thing. Right? You'll think, that's who Dave is. Right? That thing will, will, will be burned into your memory or your imagination. It will be defining But Paul says that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we bring even our greatest darkness into his light, we are transformed. That which is illuminated by him becomes a light. It takes courage to step forward and to let Jesus know us in that way. But he does not leave us where we are. He does not just leave us exposed. He washes over us with his life and his love and his light. As John says, not in his gospel, but in the the first letter of John, he says, if we live in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship, we have closeness with each other. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We step into that place and, and there's this great freedom, this great redemption, this great release. The light of Jesus Christ is never about shaming us. It is always about transforming us. It's about inviting us into the presence of the Father who loves us. So Paul ends this idea in verse 14, quoting probably an early Christian song, a hymn of some sort, maybe a part of the early church's liturgy. And he says, if, if, if light always illuminates and, and causes us to become light, then wake up, sleeper. Rise from death and let the light of Christ shine on you. Right? What greater invitation is there? To, to be woken from the dreams of death, the, the shame of sin, the insecurities that haunt us, and to wake up to the voice of our God and Father saying, My light shines on you. I love you. Be mine. Be raised into that new day, that new life of resurrection. Do you pray with me this morning?
Jesus, you said in the days you walked this earth that you are the light of the world. That if we come to you, there is no darkness that can overtake us. There's nothing more powerful than your love, and you see all of us. Just like the Samaritan woman at the well who who was exposed, who you knew all of her past, and yet she left that, that moment saying, come meet a man who knows everything I've done, but yet loves me, yet desires to know me, yet offers me life. Lord, help us to walk in the freedom and the life that belongs to children of love and light, children of the living God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.